Welcome to episode 12 of Make Me Watch It, the podcast where listeners decide which of the 800 movies I own but have never seen I'm going to watch and podcast about next. This month we are looking at Lethal Weapon, originally released on March 6th, 1987. So this is one that I missed in theaters the first time, largely because that March 6th, 1987 release date means it was released several months before I turned 10 years old. So this was definitely not a movie for a nine-year-old to see in theaters, especially since growing up in Alberta, the rating systems for movies is actually legally enforceable, subject to fines rather than criminal time, but it's something that the local theaters tend to take pretty seriously. So I've heard good things about the series, but I have enough OCD that I wasn't going to watch them until I could watch them in order. So I did pick up all four Lethal Weapon movies in a buy-in-bulk discount type deal before they started releasing the four-packs. But then before I could get around to sitting down and watching them, knowing the first one was a Christmas-themed movie, or at least set around Christmas time, Mel Gibson had a very public meltdown, and I've had difficulty watching his movies since then after hearing some of the comments that he made in that period just after The Passion of the Christ. So it did take me a long time, and I wasn't sure I was going to get back to it. If this hadn't been voted on so heavily by Bureau 42 listeners of this podcast, and been Christmas-themed, I probably wouldn't have gotten to it for quite some time. As far as the cast and crew are concerned, this is a movie directed by Richard Donner. In fact, all four Lethal Weapons are directed by Richard Donner, which I consider to be a very good thing. Donner's directing career goes back to TV episodes in 1960. So we're looking at Wanted Dead or Alive, Wagon Train, The Rifleman, Have Gun Will Travel, and a lot of the popular Western shows that were on at the time, as well as six episodes of The Twilight Zone, beginning with Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, which is one of the classics from that series, episodes of Mad from Uncle, Gilligan's Island, Perry Mason, Get Smart, Wild Wild West. So no shortage of 1960s TV credits. Some of those credits continue into the 70s with Ironside, Cannon, Streets of San Francisco, Kojak, but his directorial debut hit in 1976 with The Omen, from then on, he went to direct Superman and 45% of the released version of Superman 2, as well as a lot more footage that was tanked. For details on that, go back to my Silver Screen Superman podcast from a few years ago. I covered that in great detail when discussing Superman 1 and 2. He also directed The Toy, Lady Hawk, The Goonies, Scrooged, Radio Flyer, Assassins, Conspiracy Theory, Maverick, Timeline, and his most recent feature film production, 16 Blocks. So he is still alive and kicking, doesn't seem to be directing much since 2006, but considering he was 76 at the time and he'd be 87 now, it's not terribly surprising to learn that, yeah, maybe he's not necessarily interested in getting behind the director's chair and just looking to retire. Now, this was the first produced script written by Shane Black. He also wrote The Monster Squad, some of the story for Lethal Weapon 2, The Last Boy Scout, The Last Action Hero, The Long Kiss Goodnight, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, and both wrote and directed Iron Man 3. So he's actually moved forward nicely in his career, doing a lot of writing and directing gigs lately. Now Shane Black's original script was very dark, so Jeffrey Bohm was brought in to do an uncredited rewrite. Now he's got 13 writing credits to his name, including the Dead Zone film, Inner Space, Lost Boys, Funny Farm, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Lethal Weapon 2 and 3, 
Adventures of Briscoe County Jr., which he served as creator for, and his final project was The Phantom from 1996. He passed away at age 53 in January of 2000. In terms of the production crew, the orchestral score was done by Michael Kamen with more pop and rock music by Eric Clapton. They've both been discussed previously on this podcast. It was edited by Stuart Baird, who's best known as an editor, and he worked as an editor on Skyfall, Green Lantern, Salt, Casino Royale, Superman. He directed Star Trek Nemesis, so although he's primarily an editor, Star Trek Nemesis was his third and final director credit following Executive Decision and U.S. Marshals. He is still getting work as an editor now, with 34 editing credits to his name. Another notable member of the crew is Marion Doherty. Now, she's not necessarily a, a name that immediately springs to mind, but if you read credits, you've seen a lot that she's worked on. She's got 79 casting director credits to her name. So she was responsible for the casting in this movie, suggesting both Mel Gibson and Danny Glover. She also did some Bad News Bears movies and so forth, Escape from Alcatraz, and she really started to move forward with The World According to Garp, one of the first movies that cast Robin Williams in a dramatic role rather than straight comedy. The Man with Two Brains, Killing Fields, Lady Hawk, European Vacation, The Lost Boys, Funny Farm, Clean and Sober, Gorillas in the Mist, Tim Burton's original Batman film, Joe vs. the Volcano, Gremlins 2, Doc Hollywood, The Last Boy Scout, Batman Returns, Forever Young, Falling Down, Maverick. So definitely a respectable career as a casting director. Unfortunately, she passed away at age 88 in December of 2011. Now, when it comes to the cast, there's a few major players in this show. It's one of those buddy cop movies that were actually very common in the 1980s although this was less comedy and darker than most of them. There was really no comedy at all in Shane Black's original script. That was brought in by Jeffrey Bohm. So one of the two police officers is Martin Riggs, played by Mel Gibson. This is a police officer who used to be a phenomenal sniper in the Vietnam War, got into police work, lost his wife in a car accident, and was just a broken man who was seriously contemplating suicide. Gibson's probably best known for Braveheart, Ransom, Signs, Maverick. As I said, The Passion of the Christ was pretty significant as something that he directed. But I'd say Braveheart is probably the one that shows him most as a creator, since he both directed and starred in that one. Now, Danny Glover is probably best known for the Lethal Weapon series 2012 and The Color Purple. He's also got a pretty extensive list of credits, 195 credits to his name many of which are for shows that are in pre-production. He plays Murtaugh, the other partner who's forced into this partnership who would prefer to work alone and is starting to seriously contemplate retirement, having just turned age 50, even though Glover was only 40 when it was filmed. Now, one of the villains, by the name of Joshua, is played by Gary Busey. He's also known for his work in Under Siege, Point Break, and notably the Buddy Holly story as Buddy Holly. But he's got a lot of credits to his name as well. and he largely credits this movie for help bringing back his flagging career, because his career was starting to drop off some prior to Lethal Weapon. Now, Mitchell Ryan plays the general in this. He's also known for Gross Point Blank, Liar Liar, Halloween. Bureau 42 listeners would probably know him best as Kyle Riker, father of Will Riker, from Star Trek The Next Generation. But as the general, he is one of the people involved in this who was bringing in a lot of 
drugs from overseas and had been for years. And that's really what this is about. There's two police officers who start investigating a murder, and by the time that murder is solved, they're investigating a pretty extensive drug smuggling scheme. Tom Atkins plays another character who was involved in that. Now, Atkins is probably better known for Escape from New York, The Fog, and Halloween 3, amongst his 79 total credits on the IMDb. But here he probably is known as his role in Michael Hunsaker, who was someone that Murtaugh knew from the past and had realized that, yeah, there's something going on here. Interestingly, Tracy Wolfe gets an and introducing credit, so clearly the people producing this had pretty high hopes for her. She plays Rianne Murtaugh, the daughter of Donald Glover's character, but that didn't really seem to translate into a huge career for her. Her six acting credits on the IMDb begin with Lethal Weapon, go to one guest appearance on In the Heat of the Night, Lethal Weapon 2, two guest appearances on The Cosby Show, Lethal Weapon 3, and Lethal Weapon 4. This was also the film debut for Jackie Swanson. She plays Amanda Hunsacker, the suicidal woman early on, who did do that stunt where she basically commits suicide jumping off an apartment building, although in real life she fell onto a rather sizable airbag. She would go on to have a number of other credits. She's probably best known for playing Kelly Gaines, later Kelly Boyd, in Cheers, Woody's girlfriend and wife, as well as guest appearances in Baby Talk and The Golden Girls, amongst her 21 credits. Now, if you're paying attention, you might also notice Al Leong, who shows up in a lot of movies because he's got a very distinctive look. He gets cast a lot if you need a rather bulky person from East Asia. He played Genghis Khan in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. He was the terrorist Uli in the original Die Hard. He was in Big Trouble with Little China. So he's got 71 credits to his name, a very respectable resume, a lot of high-profile projects, but usually at smaller parts. And if you look at his work on the A-Team alone, he was in five different episodes as five different characters. So a lot of times he's just that sort of token Asian that they need for one particular scene, and has been since his debut in The Greatest American Hero in 1983. And final notable appearance here is the film debut of Joan Severance, known for Bird on a Wire, See No Evil, Hear No Evil, the Black Scorpion movies, and more. So as I said, this it was written by Shane Black, and his original draft was very dark. I even have a friend who tells me that he was at the premiere screening, well, not necessarily the premiere, but one of the early test screenings to gauge fan reactions. And in that early draft, Riggs essentially gets his wish. So they don't just wrap everything up, but both officers get what they want. In Riggs' case, that means death and release from life. Apparently, the test audiences felt that that didn't feel like a victory no matter what. So it was rewritten to keep his character alive, which obviously is what opened it up for the sequels. Now, in terms of the overall production quality plot, this is a good movie, but I do need to see it another time. I came into it more on the strength of the reputations of the later movies in the franchise, and particularly the trailers for the fourth one that I saw regularly when I was working in a movie theater, and those prime me to anticipate a lot more comedy than there actually was in this one. Now, a lot of that comedy seems to come from Joe Pesci's character, who is introduced in the second film and continues through the rest of the series. So it may just be that the trailers I saw are accurate reflections of funnier sequels. It's not that this one isn't funny, it's just that it is very much police drama, buddy cop thing about the drug importing first. And then the comedy 
really is second. It does feel like an afterthought, which makes sense when you find out that that was inserted in an uncredited rewrite to keep it from being as dark as it is. Now, it is well-directed, and that's one thing I've got to give Richard Donner a lot of credit for. There's a lot of great directors out there, but he's one that can really shift gears. You've got horror in The Omen, then you've got the superhero movie in the original Superman, which is still arguably the greatest superhero movie ever made. You've got adventure in The Goonies. You've got action, and very dark action here. You've got the Western in Maverick, which is very light, and yet another one of his collaborations with Mel Gibson. They also work together on conspiracy theory. So this is actually a really good movie, which is nice. It's coming from a very versatile director. Now, this did win a few awards. It was nominated for one Academy Award, which it did not win, but it was nominated for Best Sound. It won the BMI Film and TV Awards for Best Music. It won Image Awards for Danny Glover, Tracy Wolf, and Outstanding Motion Picture. It won the Golden Reel Award from the Sound Editors for Best Sound Editing. And it was nominated for a young actress in a horror or mystery motion picture for Ebony Smith, who played the youngest in the Murtaugh family. In terms of the overall box office performance, as we said, we need to see a movie bring in about two to three times its production budget before it's considered profitable. Now, neither the IMDb nor Box Office Mojo list a production budget for this film, which tend to be the two most reliable sources for such information. Wikipedia lists the budget at $15 million which sounds about right to me, given where the stars were in their careers at this point, what it would actually take to make this movie happen. So it's probably not far off that $15 million mark, but because the only source I can see for that is Wikipedia, I do have cause to question the accuracy of that number. I do know that the total domestic gross for this film was $65 million, plus international markets of about $55 million, for a total worldwide box office of about $120 million. So if that $15 million is accurate, it brought in about eight times its production budget. Even if it's not accurate, this would still be profitable as long as the budget was, you know, less than that 40 to $60 million range, which it almost certainly was. That $50 million estimate is, I trust it's better than that. So it's easy to see why this started spawning sequels, which of course could only happen because of that rewritten ending. So in short, I did enjoy it, but because it wasn't what I was expecting, even if that was an unfair expectation, I do need to see it again before I really judge it properly. In any event, that's about all I've got to say about the original Lethal Weapon. Join us again next month when we discuss the next film in the line. There's about 10 more to pick from that are tied. I haven't decided exactly which way I'm going to go, so I will see you in January. Thank you for listening.